Blog Talk Radio. And good evening and welcome to another edition of the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network and WCOM and uh, in Carborough and Chapel Hill. We thank you for joining us once again here. We thank them for allowing us to broadcast this bad boy as well. Uh, of course, if you're listening to WCOM, you can listen to the show live at WCOMFM.org. Follow us and, and, and make your comments at Facebook at Pad Nation, Pad Nation 2. That's the number two at Twitter, Instagram, and of course, the re broadcast of all our shows is right there at the Bachelor News Radio Network.com, Bachelor with a T. When I go to the phones, bring in my guest. She is an assistant to the executive director of Straight Talk Support Group. Uh, and uh, I know she's got a, a special guest with her. Uh, she is Nora Dicker. And, and Nora, I appreciate you guys uh, coming on this evening. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. And um uh, Tyrone Baker is with me, who is helping me organize uh, this fundraiser for Straight Talk Support Group. He's a local Durham author, um, author of A Converse Perspective, Critiquing Peniology and Rehabilitation, Inmate Rehabilitation. Yeah, and uh, we have an um, interesting and, and, and certainly a, a background that fits uh, sort of what you guys try to do what your mission is and, and speaking of that for, for for those who don't know who straight talk support group is uh talk about your mission statement and what you try to do yeah so um straight talk support group's mission is um to serve our residents in our transitional house um who are people who have been released from prison or men specifically is to help serve them 360 degrees care um, so that means that we try to kind of meet our residents really where they're at and um, serve all their needs. So we try to connect them to substance use counseling if that's necessary, mental health support, physical um, care providers, uh, peer support, technology assistance, other educational classes, you know, job readiness, really anything that the resident um, feels is really important to them, we try to help them get there. Mm. And And... This this uh, organization, of course, is in Durham, but you serve outside of the uh, uh, outside of Durham County, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when we were, we would have support groups, um, not happening with COVID, but um, for the loved ones of those who have been incarcerated or are pre, uh, previously incarcerated or currently. And so that's not specific to Durham. And as well, in terms of the transitional house, we really do serve um, people from all over the country. Um, it really just depends. We have a contract with um, the Department of Public Safety, and so they um, send us people, and we interview them and then approve them. So our referrals do come directly from the Department of Public Safety. You know, I've had you on. We'll get to Mr. Baker in just a second. But I've had you on before, and we talked about the needs of those in transition and and to, to really put them on the right path um, from a morale standpoint and 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 just from helping them with jobs and housing and everything else uh, what's the toughest part of your job nora uh once they come to you uh and you try to get them on the right path what's the, the steps and the toughest job part of your job right now I think the toughest part is um, that, you know, every resident comes with us for different needs. So there's no, like, surefire way um, to support a person through their transition back into the community. So it kind of keeps us always on our feet, always learning, you know, what we can do best. Um, And that's why we do try to have our residents leading their transition because they know what they feel is best for them. 
Um, so that's really tough. And then plus on top of things, we are in a pandemic. Um, housing funds are really limited right now. So affordable housing is a lot harder to get into. And so we're finding definitely, I mean, that's the last step of the transition, right, is to get housing. And so COVID has definitely um, made that much harder. Yeah, I, I can imagine um, that it has to be COVID. And it, it, especially with your event, the virtual event coming up. Uh, got some noise in the background. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Tyrone Baker, I know uh, you are a part of this. I know it's near and dear to you. Uh, share your experiences and why uh, you want to be a part of uh, Straight Talk Support Group and their event coming up in March. Yeah, uh, like I said, I mean, I have actually been through the transition process. I did um, 14 years in prison here in North Carolina. I went to prison as a teenager, and I was released in my early 30s. And um, I actually saw the transition firsthand. I saw some of the things that, you know, I had been reading about for so long, you know, and it really touched me. It really it really touched me. I, I was fortunate to have a extremely supportive network of people who were standing by my side and willing to support me in many ways, but I understand the plight of guys who don't, and I know that they need the services that Straight Talk Support Group provides. You know, and, and one thing that really resonated with me about Straight Talk Support Group's mission is the fact that they basically tailor their services to fit the needs of the person they're servicing. You know, um, a lot of people approach this idea of transition with this cookie-cutter, like, standard, you know, one-size-fits-all approach. You know, everybody kind of needs the same thing, and that is not sufficient. That's not how it works. You know, we are too different as humans to, you know, every, for everybody to need the same services. I like the way in which Straight Talk Support Group understands it, and not only understands it, you know, it's a part of their mission, it's, it's how they actually operate. You know, so I do think that the services that Straight Talk Support Group provides are not only very much needed, but they're beneficial to society. You know, a lot of people don't understand that when guys are getting out of prison, they're going to be somebody's next-door neighbor. You know, they're going to live next door to somebody whose kids are going to be playing out in the driveway. You know, so I'm like, okay, do you want somebody who just spent decades in gladiator school and is being released back into the free world without any type of services, without any type of assistance, without any type of help transitioning and reacclimating to society? Do you want that to be your next door neighbor? Or do you want someone who has had the treatment and the counseling and the therapy and the education and the job training that they need to be physically upstanding individuals? You know, would you rather have that person as your next door neighbor? I think that straight talk support groups, I guess, um, commitment to the latter is what is what really resonates with me, you know, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of this, this event that's coming up on March 9th, and as Nora said, I'm also an author. I wrote a book called A Convict's Perspective, Critiquing Penology and Inmate Rehabilitation, and I will be donating all of the proceeds, all of the profits from book sales in the month of February and in the month of March to Straight Talk Support Group, you know, because I, I firmly believe in what they do and, and in their mission. You know, it's, it's very much needed, especially in this climate right now. Wow. Um you know, it, your story, uh, again, uh, you, you talked about the 14 years incarceration early. Uh, I'm sure that was um, shocking and, and devastating for you at the time. But, um, you know, in reading uh, your bio about all the books that you read, and, and, and one of the things I say, as, just as a sidebar to my children and others, is that the more you read, the smarter you become. The more you understand life, right? You you get it in fiction, nonfiction, whatever. I encourage people to read all the time, and um, that led to a lot of perspective. It seems for you um, coming out of that. So my question is, when you got out, I, I know you 
you self-habilitated yourself uh, uh, somewhat, but were there other programs, other mentors, other people that have gone through that kind of helped you on your way? How did you get your feet on solid ground? Actually, uh, <laughs> my family, man, my family is such, they're, they're just such amazing people, you know, and um, I, because of my writings, not only did I, you know, get my book published while I was incarcerated, I also authored a few articles that were published in academic journals, both here in the U.S. and in Canada. So I managed to get the attention of a few academics and uh, from UNC Pembroke, from UNC Wilmington, from UNC Charlotte, people in their criminal justice program. So a lot of these professors kind of came to my aid and helped me with the transition, you know, especially uh, people like Dr. Kimberly Cook from UNC Wilmington. She's done a lot of work with guys who have transitioned from prison to free society. So she kind of shared with me a lot of the things that she has encountered in dealing with guys who've been through that journey. And, um, and not only that, you know, just, my family, my mom, my dad, I mean, I, I can't really overstate the importance of what I call in my book extra penal support. People who are not incarcerated or who haven't been incarcerated showing love to those who have or who are. You know, the fact that they were uh, kind of oblivious to what I was going through psychologically, but still stood by me and still were willing to give me my space when I needed it, still were willing to introduce me to people, still were willing to, you know, me and house me when I when I needed it. the fact that they were still willing to do that despite not understanding what I was going through at the time really speaks volumes. You know, and I, I think that Straight Talk Support Group actually kind of like it's like a surrogate family for a lot of guys, you know, who are going through that that transition process. You know, and I I, I do think that um oh yeah also and not only that I, I actually taught a business class for about five years while I was incarcerated, so I managed to link up with a few people like. James Seals, the CEO of Mechanics and Farmers Bank, and Dr. Henry McCoy from North Carolina Central University. And they've been just outstanding mentors, you know, helping me to, I guess, stay focused instead of, you know, just meandering and just, you know, doing nothing. You know, they've they kind of kept me focused on my mission and on my goals, you know. So I think that having those mentors and having the support of my family, you know, I think that that is really, like, the key to – that was the key for me to get on my feet and to start moving forward. And I think Straight Talk Support Group kind of – stands in that void for a lot of brothers who don't have the blessings that I had when I came home. It's it's um it's really um interesting you should say that because my next question was uh we know how engaged you are, you believe in it. and and listen, when you believe in an organization, when you believe in something like that with passion, then you you're able to really sell it. You really people can understand it. They can feel the passion like when Nora talks about it as well. So aside from the book and and the the proceeds, which is extremely important, we'll get back to what the needs are. Um, have you taken someone under your wing per se, or, or teaching any classes or any groups or any mentorship there uh, at Straight Talk? Actually, I have not, not yet, and that's something I hope uh, Nora and I can you know maybe explore in the future. I, I haven't. I guess gotten to that point, but I would love to. And and to be honest, you know, I'm I'm still in the I'm still a work in progress myself. You know, I haven't been I got released August fifth, two thousand twenty. So I've been free for six months. You know, so I, I haven't really uh I've met guys who were out maybe a year, year and a half before they felt like they really got prison out of their system, so to speak. You know, so I, I am still a work in progress myself, but you know, as my journey unfolds, I would love to be of assistance to other brothers who are who are who maybe not, you know, maybe aren't as far along in their journey as I may be, you know. I really would. 
That's a blessing. And Straight Talk Support Group, we like we would love to have uh, Mr. Baker come to the house and like other people who have also, um, you know, had their experience and would like to share their growth and like their transition um, because that really just would help, you know, be a hopeful environment for the guys as well as like, you know, getting connections as, um, you know, sometimes we see guys who see somebody else who's out and successful now and um, they were actually in prison with them as well and so that can be a really um, empowering and encouraging uh, interaction if you and did, it definitely can I would like to, I want to I want to sure. uh, jump in right there now this is something that I, I think um, gets overlooked um, it's hard to be what you can't see you know so there are a lot of people who have a lot of guys incarcerated and who are getting out who don't really get to see examples of success post-prison success you know it's not like people who have done time and went on to be successful are, you know, standing on the rooftops, you know, shouting their story, you know, so a lot of guys try to keep it concealed, but it, I, I think that that's something that should be, uh, I guess, advertised a little bit more. I actually worked with a guy named Brandon Hammond. He is the owner of Storm Tech Roofing and Restoration. He actually served time here in North Carolina, and he was kind enough to give me a job when I first came home, you know, so him, he and I are still in contact, and we're still working. He's very successful, you know, six-figure income, very successful, like, with guys like that, I would love to popularize their story a little bit more so people can see that it's possible to go from prison to success, you know, without having to engage in criminality to do so, you know? You know, I, I, as I started to say, it, you, you're truly blessed. I mean, you just, you know, recently got out and look at what you're doing and you're giving back. Why don't, uh, just as a side note, before we go, I'll go back to Nora, why is society set up, well, we know, the, the alarming rate with uh, African Americans and, and Latinos and in terms of incarceration is, is a, a alarming rate, much more than others. Um, but when we get out, don't, why are we not doing what we, you're doing? Like um, the the person you just mentioned that gave you a job when you get out, he's making six figures. Why are we not doing that? Is it um, systemic in terms of uh, not only people don't have faith that they can, you know, succeed once they get out, but they don't have the resources or those mentors who have, you know, deep pockets that can help them. It doesn't seem like it happens enough, Tyrone. I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And I think that a lot of the issues, um, they can be cultural and social in nature. I, I think, you know, uh, we're talking about people who are, you know, ex-convicts, who have, you know, broken the law, been convicted of breaking the law for whatever reason. So it's not like they're um, society's favorite people, and people tend to look down on, on those. And that has, you know, some historical roots that are probably beyond the scope of this radio station. But I do think that um, people, how can I say it? People don't really want to invest in prisoners like they would invest in, I guess, regular American citizens, if that makes sense. But we're, we're, it seems like guys from Vietnam aren't even viewed as regular American citizens, which is baffling to me because uh, I met guys like, oh, my God, I met guys who were 30, 40, 50 years old and couldn't read. You know, I met guys who had been locked up for 20 years and never seen a smartphone, didn't know what Twitter was, didn't know what a mortgage was or a mortgage application, let alone how to fill one out. You know, so these are the people that are being released into society, and when they struggle a little bit, you know, when they when they falter a little bit, when they don't know that they can go to the public library to look up resources, when they don't know how to do that, we keep shame and contempt upon them for not behaving like model citizens while dealing with such a burden. Like that, 
I think that a lot of people don't understand, like, these guys that are going through this transition are, they, they need help. They really do. And it's not just giving them handouts. You know, I think that people just view it as a handout and they just like, you know what, we don't want to give these guys handouts. They broke the law. You know, they, they committed a crime or, you know, they, they violated X, Y, Z. Or, I mean, that's true, but we got to look forward. We got to look at, okay, they did that. Now what do we do about it, you know? Like, they broke the law, so how do we make these guys into better citizens? How do we kind of incorporate them into this American experiment so that they can live civically upstanding lives and not be burdened to their community? I don't, I don't think people have adopted that paradigm. I still think people are kind of committed to this notion of punishment being the solution to all problems. You know, so they want, I guess, perpetual punishment, a lifetime of punishment, which means, you know, exclusion from public resources, exclusion from advanced educative opportunities, you know? That commitment to that type of, like, regressive narrative is why brothers like you know who are coming out of prison have to struggle in the way that they do you know i wish that wasn't the case and i, I i'm committed to doing whatever i can to make sure that you know that that narrative gets you know changed and, and modernized you know yeah and i i it's it, uh, i'm glad you said that uh because you know i'm not picking on martha stewart but you know she committed all kinds of fraud and insider trading and she she had a little uh, what you call it, um, house arrest, and I would contend that those white-collar crimes could be just as devastating, even more, ruining people's lives and everything else as someone who makes a mistake at 16 or even uh, older or whatever. Um, but society will forgive Martha Stewart, but they won't forgive, you know, Tyrone Baker. Of course, you know, and, and that, I think that, that, also, that also has historical roots as well, like what people don't realize, this is something, um, I got a, a friend of mine, her name is Dr. Renee Lampert, she teaches at UNC Pembroke. So um, she actually, um, her and I had this conversation before. What people don't realize is white-collar crime, you know, it actually causes more harm than so-called street crime. When you look at the Uniform Crime Report or the, I guess, the statistics that, you know, the Federal Bureau of Investigation puts out about crime, you see things that will be shocking to you if you actually read the statistics. You know, you can look at a company like like General Motors, in order to save, you know, a few dollars, they would not put the safety mechanism in one of their cars, and it ends up killing 50 people, you know. But, of course, a corporation can't go to prison, so they get a fine and a slap on the wrist. You know, this, this I guess, person, this corporation just killed 50 people on the low, and nothing happened because of it. Like, that happens frequently from pesticides causing cancer because CEOs want to, you know, cut costs because they don't want to warn people about, you know, the ways in which they're polluting, you know, water and polluting the the ground. I mean, it's, it's so many ways that white collar crime. I'm not just talking about financial crime. There's so many ways that white collar crime causes so much more damage, but it isn't in your face. You know, it isn't as shocking or sensationalized as you know a shooting in the street. You know, like I mean, it's 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 mind-boggling to me. You know, it's it's baffling. But I do think that, um, unfortunately, that actually, you know, we look at the history of the criminal justice system. It actually was rooted, you know, in the horrible, I guess, race relations that the country was founded on. You know. For a long time, and, and on the heels of Reconstruction, the criminal justice system was weaponized against black people from the very beginning and against poor people from the very beginning. It was kind of like, you know what? We in the South can't enslave you anymore, so how about we throw little loopholes into the law to make everything that you do basically a crime and give us grounds to lock you up for the smallest, most trivial things, you know? So I think that by using that, they were able to, I guess, keep people of a certain I guess, demographic in a certain position in society, you know, and I think that what we're seeing now is like residue of that era, you know what I mean? And that's, I think that that's, that's kind of, it's so much to unpack, you know, it's so, it's so deeply rooted and it's just, it's a lot to get into, but, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, 
and 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 it, it look i call it the way it is it is racist and i i can't call it criminal justice system i can call it a criminal system because there's no justice there no equal justice um and you know uh, you know um minorities i'll just keep it real you know for the most part we gotta follow the law and be law-abiding like everybody else but other people can go storm the, the capital and take their country back so I'll just keep it at that. Um, Nora, you know, if you're just joining us too, folks, uh, we're talking with Nora uh, Dicker. She is the assistant to the executive director of Straight Talk Support Group here in Durham. And, of course, Tyrone uh, Baker uh, is an author. Uh, the book is A Convict's Perspective. is a scathing critique of the forces against uh, organizations like, uh, like Durham prisons and, and others. Um, but it, it's a good read, and I, I certainly want to get him on uh, as we do our book series uh, sometime uh, in the future. We'll talk about that. Nora, let me ask you this, and then I'll ask Tyrone briefly, uh, if you can, um, just to talk about um, the mentality of um, those who are coming back out of prison that were incarcerated, Nora, um, that, you know, what are some of the, the, the concerns as soon as they, they get out? Um, is it the faith, the believing that they can be successful, or is it, you know, something as simple as, you know, I need a job? Yeah, I mean, I would say most of the guys who come into the house usually arrive highly, highly motivated. Um, most of them, the most common way that they are motivated, though, is to um, hit the ground running and get a job immediately, um, which... Of course, we want our residents to be, like, employed and be able to support themselves financially independently, you know. But what we've found is that when they rush straight into getting a job and they might not have, like, IDs or they might not um, be getting their substance abuse counseling or seeing a mental health provider, that some of their other needs that will really help them create such a really strong foundation for a successful life um, after prison that if that stuff isn't there, um, if they're just employed and focused on that, usually one of those things comes up later down the line and can kind of mess up the flow of their transition. Uh, same question for you, Tyrone. Yeah, I, I, that is what Noah just said. Really was, that was an awful. I mean, I think that um, guys who, who I know who have made the transition, they, like Noah said, want to jump into the employment scene, the primary economy, and, and start supporting themselves. But Unfortunately, a lot of them haven't dealt with the underlying issues that come along with being incarcerated for a significant period of time. You know, I've met guys who still had, you know, maybe anger issues and still had, you know, untreated mental health issues and still had, you know, still were, you know, emotionally underdeveloped, underdeveloped you know, and they, they hadn't dealt with these underlying issues and they would try to jump into the employment scene and whether they succeeded or failed, um, really kind of dependent on how well they had dealt with these underlying issues. The guy with the anger problem goes to work, finds a job, but doesn't keep the job because of his anger issues. You know, the guy with the emotional issues finds, you know, a relationship with some woman and gets involved with her, but that doesn't work out because of his unresolved emotional issues, you know, which is why Straight Talk Support Group is such an amazing organization because they help guys dealing with these, these underlying issues so that they can be employable, you know. Like, wanting a job and being employable are two different things, and I think that, um, you know, a lot of guys don't don't seem to realize that, you know? Yeah, and, Nora, just to, to speak to that, uh, as we, uh, let's talk about the event coming up in March. Um, the needs and, and, and why are you doing this and, and how uh, Mr. Baker is uh, incorporating all of this. Talk about this event. 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we're really excited about this event. It's called a transition journey, and um, our goals are twofold. Of course, throughout this through this event and the tickets um, proceeds, which are twenty five dollars on our Facebook page. Um, of, and then, of course, the proceeds from Mr. Baker's book as well. So um, that's, of course, part is raising the funds to be able to help our guys um, maybe uh, pay for the identification fees or get the clothes that they need for an interview or get help paying their prescriptions. You know, I mean, there's unending things um, that we could use funds for just to be able to give guys like a really well-rounded transition and support. But um, also, we want to raise awareness about the transition um, and about the experience starting in prison, um, preparing to be released, and then afterwards, and what resources are available and also what barriers are experienced because every person coming out of prison they experience this transition Um, and so I think that it's really important to raise awareness on what this experience can look like and how as a community we can um, come together and give more support. And it almost sounds more like um, what do you guys do and I'm not I don't want to seem make it seem like I'm watering it down but you know um some of these uh other organizations that want to provide um the tangibles which you definitely need you know from toothbrushes to socks and everything else mm-hmm. but you also like i think what mr baker was saying is which is so uh great is that you you cater to every person's need so the question is how does it, how does one get in how many uh, beds are available. Um, are there any restrictions to who can get in if it's a violent crime? Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, we do have a contract with DPS. So, our referrals um, come through the Department of Public Safety. Now, where that referral starts, it could be um, parole officer making a referral, a probation officer, um, or usually, it's usually a caseworker in um, the prison can make that referral. Um, and we don't have really any particular. Um, restrictions besides the fact that they, we cannot have sex offenders. Um, so people who have um, been convicted of a sex offense crime cannot come to the house because it is across the street from the school. Um, and of course, um, we are an only men's transitional house as well. But those are the main two restrictions of, of the house. But you do help, uh, do referrals. If you can't help the person, especially like if it's a a female or a relative or something along those lines, you do try to to help as much as you can uh, with the resources that you have or the, the, the connections that you have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some, we do get calls or um, sometimes it hasn't been communicated very well to men who are still in prison that we, um, where we get our referrals from. So they'll write us letters and I'll write them letters back um, with whatever the information they give in the letter, trying to give them some other resources of what they can look into. You know, I just start looking in and using um, the knowledge that I've learned through this job to try to figure out what resources might be available. So I mean, everybody on the staff at Straight Talk Support Group and involved with Straight Talk Support Group want to help in every way that we can. It just might not be as direct as through the transitional house. So how can people uh, purchase a ticket, which I need to get mine, I believe, on Facebook. How can people uh, purchase tickets and, 
and get involved with this and, and even help beyond. It's just, this is just one event that helps, fundraising and everything, but helping beyond. How can they stay connected? Yeah, so um, the tickets can be purchased on our Facebook page. It's the top post pinned to our page. You can just click that link and go to purchase on the event. It's also the link is on our homepage of our website. Um, so really when you search a Straight Talk Support Group, it's either on the homepage of our Facebook or the homepage of our website. Um, the tickets are $25. And like I said, all of the proceeds from the tickets, as well as from um, Tyrone Baker's book, A Convict's Perspective, for February and March are going to Straight Talk Support Group's Transitional House. Um, and we're really excited about this event. Um, but, yes, yeah, so you can find it on the website or on our Facebook page. And give the website and the Facebook page uh, once again. And, and, yeah. and Tyrone, if you can uh, give how people can uh, reach uh, uh, get your book as well. Okay. Yeah, so our, our Facebook group is uh, Straight Talk Support Group Durham, and our website is www.straighttalksupportgroup.org. And my book is available on Amazon, and it is called A Convict's Perspective, Critiquing Phenology and Inmate Rehabilitation. There is a link to it on my Facebook page at Tyrone Baker, and I also put a link to the virtual fundraiser that Straight Talk Support Group is going to be hosting in my Instagram. My Instagram is Tyrone underscore L underscore Baker. There's a link in my bio that'll take you right to where you can purchase the ticket. And, yeah, we just uh, hopefully your listeners can, can show Straight Talk some support. Well, we uh, have some stuff posted. We're going to continue to. I know we got another interview to do uh, before the event, and we're going to continue to push it not only on our website, thebastionnewsradionetwork.com, but also on our uh, Facebook and, and Twitter and LinkedIn and all the other ones. We've got TuneIn, iTunes, all of that. And, and these rebroadcasts will go out so they can hear this, um, this important information with this important event, but more importantly, what. Uh, Straight Talk Support Group is doing. Listen, thank you both so much. God bless you. Be well. And I will talk with you very soon. And, and as I said, Mr. Baker, we'll get you on uh, to uh, talk about your book as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a great night.
show. We thank you for listening to the Bastion News Radio Show on the Bastion News Radio Network and our sister station, WCOM in Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina. I'm L.A. Bachelor. Thank you. Uh, we appreciate you checking in. The number, of course, 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us. Chat room is open. You can hit us up on Facebook as well with your questions, comments, whatever you like to say, uh, and get in touch with our guests. You can certainly do that. Speaking of which, he is a motivational speaker. He's a media personality and he's a community activist. Always good to have the doctor making a house call, Dr. Lee Bell. And, Doc, I appreciate your patience and, and coming on, sir. Well, thanks for having me inside the bachelor pad, L.A. Absolutely. Uh, Doc, I had to have you on. This debate about, um, obviously, COVID is, is, is taking a lot of the the news and deservedly so with with so many of us that we know that have gone through and are going through because of COVID-19. But one of the things that this new administration had promised to deliver was a increase in minimum wage. Now it's, I don't think we've had one since, uh, George Bush, you know the second, you know uh, not daddy but but son. Um, it, it makes absolute no sense. Let me throw some stuff at you and the audience that you already know, Doc. I know you know because you with the Poor People's Campaign, and I know Dr. Barber, Rev, Dr. Reverend Barber, yourself are <clears throat> championing these things in areas. Um, Seven twenty-five an hour comes out to what 15,000 of that a year the um, experts or so-called experts or the average in the United States that is considered to be not poor or above the poverty line is $12,000 a year so I People want to have this debate, well, you know, Michigan, uh, you know, their cost of living and, and maybe their, their, their annual income is higher than West Virginia, Connecticut is higher than there, New York is this and this and that. But you can't have a universal number above or below the poverty line. So I, I, say, I say this to you, Doc, and I bring this up to you. That this administration made a point of in their 100 days and adding this into their agenda because people are suffering. Um, that this the $15 minimum wage increase across the board would be in the bill. Now they're backing off. We knew Joe uh, Manchin was going to be who he is. He, I don't know why he's got a D on his, his name. He's really a Republican. Um, and you would think West Virginia, one of the poorest, if not the poorest state in the country, would need $15 an hour. So, Doc, it's it just it, – and we get into the parliamentarian and all that other stuff uh, and, you know, the, the Senate votes. But at the end of the day, 
people are suffering. People were poor before COVID-19. They're still poor after the bill. So talk about this, how important this is um, to save lives. This is a moral issue, and this is a life and death issue in raising the minimum wage. $15, by the way, is not a lot of money, by the way. It's really not. You know, L.A., I invite your audience to visit poorpeoplescampaign.org. Our banner is a national call for moral leadership. It's immoral to have a minimum wage resting at 7.25. It's a moral outrage. Before the pandemic, we were working with about 140 million. That's the number of people the Poor People's Campaign represents. 140 people in 140 million people in poverty. With the pandemic alone, and I'll start there since it's most precious in our minds, even after everyone who's going to get the vaccination gets it and gets back to work, we're looking at a prolonged period of recovery. People have lost their savings if they had any savings. And those who had no savings, they are deeply in debt. So we have to create a mechanism to help our communities start to climb out of this huge hole that we're in, a hole that was created in part by the previous administration, both the Senate, the presidency, and we can even lay blame at the feet of the Supreme Court. People caught in this pandemic are suffering from more than just the pandemic itself. People have emotional issues. Children have emotional issues that have been exacerbated by the pandemic, whether it being staying at home as a parent because you need to watch your children and can't work, or whether it be the children not being able to be in a social atmosphere as social beings. The food you buy has gone up. We've seen gas prices going up. Everything tends to go up and not stay stagnant. We have increased medical costs. Everything around us is increasing except our pay. We've been working towards $15 an hour for quite some time. We've been working hand-in-hand with Fight for 15, the organization. The people running our government 
the so-called leaders, if they believe $15 is a living wage, it should really be higher than that. But if they believe that the working people of this country don't deserve $15, don't need $15, I say to them, try living on $15 yourself. This, you know, it did. Doc, I was going to say, go ahead. Go ahead, sir. This institution that we look to to have our best interests at heart is woefully lacking. Both Democrats and Republicans. Go ahead, L.A. I was going to say, Doc, and you you point out so many important things, and and I think it goes back to the greed of this country. But, you know, I want to share this. And, again, Doc, you're familiar with a lot of these numbers, but I want to share this um, with the audience out there. You know, out of 32 countries, Mexico being the worst in terms of minimum wage, 90 cents, which is – just got awful um, And then you got parts of the old um, USSR The Russian Federations $1.30 Brazil Is is horrible People it, it go there all the time um, But And, and this, these are U, U.S. dollars by the way That I'm, I'm basing it on Brazil's U.S. dollars If it was in there If it was U.S. dollars Is, is, is $2 Colombia's $2.40 you got Chile, the uh, Slovak Republic, Costa Rica. I'm not even getting all of them. But the point is, the United States is number um, 12. Slovenia, right behind us. Slovenia, Dr. Bell, seven bucks. Uh, right in front of us, um, Again, these are U.S. dollars. It's Japan, but this is this, this is the hypocrisy of this country. We always want to talk about how great we are in democracy, and 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 we're calling out Russia and we're calling out um, China and other places for you know crimes against humanity, how how they treat their people and and all this stuff. France number one, by the way. At eleven bucks and twenty cents an hour, Australia second, um, and then you see stuff like this, land of the free. We're just the most innovative and most creative, and and we have the most wealth. Yet we're number twelve out of thirty-two countries in the research I've done. Number twelve. So we always talking the talk, Doc, and we never walk the walk. We we never come through, and and this is the land of hypocrisy more so than to me um, than the land of the free. Well, L.A., it's actually the hypocrisy of democracy. Yep. We talk about freedom, yet we are enslaved people economically. When we're talking about poor and low wealth individuals 
we're talking about violence that is being perpetrated by our very own government. Many folk in the working force are working two and three jobs. I can go back a few years right outside of Flint where a six-year-old girl was shot in school. She was shot by a five-year-old boy. That five-year-old boy was living with his father away from his mother. His mother had to work two jobs, and they were in the Detroit area. That's 60 miles away from her home, 60 miles away from her children. When we put these huge burdens on the people who actually carry our economy, they are abused. They are victims. We know that life happens. But somewhere in this fairy tale called America, things have got to change. When America says it's the greatest land there is, it's actually one of the worst. You have the Republican Party right now lying about an election. They said they won, but they lost. We need to transform our leadership Your average U.S. rep makes about $178,000 plus perks. Nancy Pelosi and and, and and to that to your to your point, Doc. I mean to cut you off. To your point, their ass wouldn't live off no 15 bucks an hour, but they won't even give up 15 bucks an hour. And to your point, how much they're making, they won't try to live off no 15 bucks an hour. Let alone seven twenty-five, seven dollars and twenty-five cents. Yet, go on in terms of the salaries and all the perks that they get. Well, I can't even start to name all of the perks, but one they could actually do away with—that's the free parking at the airports. Our parking here in Flint at our airport—it was very reasonable. For a long time until they regionalized the ownership of our airport, it almost tripled. And Flint's a pretty small place. If you go to the Detroit, the Phillies, the New Yorks, their parking is actually two to three times of what ours currently is. It's, it's expensive to park at the airport. Why can't these representatives? Park where we park. There was talk yesterday after the announcement about the new threat on the Capitol. Putting extra, a thousand extra Capitol Police on duty. That in itself would cost $100 million a year. Our elected officials are now saying they're scared when they're flying back and forth from their district to D.C. And they want 
their buddies, their cronies, their co-workers to provide security to them when they're in their home districts. That money should be going towards the workers, the worker bees. They ran for these jobs. And they ran in part because of the money. But when you, I, and some of our friends want to make enough to keep our heads above water, they don't think it's important. I say let's start looking at a maximum wage for our elections. What do you say to, to not just the politicians, they, they, they have their agenda, but to those people say, well, you know, look, Connecticut is, you know, whatever, 13 bucks an hour, I think it is, my home state. New York's like uh, 14, California's 18. Um, you know, then you got Michigan and you got, you know, the West Virginians and stuff. What do you say that, you know, um, certain states are not equipped to be able to handle that? It will hurt the state economy if they overpay and hurt small businesses. What do you say to those folks? that we are working towards a more perfect union. We can find a formula that allows this $15 an hour movement some some wiggle room. For the poorer states, I have to ask, why are they so much more poorer Is it a case of education, lack of education? Perhaps are these lower-wage states doing something purposely to minimize the pay of the workers? You have to do a deep dive when we're talking about America. says in prison. Slavery is still legal. Are these states perpetuating poverty while the rich folks in those states continue to flourish? And if we continue along this, the haves and the have-nots, America is going to get dealt with. You know, if you ask the GOP, the grand old uh, party, they'll tell you it's poor leadership in these states, which, again, is inaccurate, not to pick on West Virginia, but they, they're they they're Republican-run, and they have been for a long time. You look at Mississippi, one of the lower states. The state I'm in, um, you know, Carolina has one of the worst, uh, to your point, educations. They're in the, the, the bottom tier. Um so if if it's if the GOP is going to say it's deliberate, then they need to look themselves in the mirror. But here's the point: there's no moral 
courage to do this. And I go back, Doc, as you said, Republicans and Democrats, right? Um, you know, with this this parliamentarian, and I don't want to get into all the all the legalities and all that stuff because it can get a little tedious. But that the, the the Senate parliamentarian is just someone who makes a recommendation. Just like if you were a financial advisor and you make a rec- recommendation for me and how to run my finances, it's not the law. And and I always get you know upset with these politicians, but not surprised uh, that they make the laws, but they don't want to change the laws unless it's some kind of pork in some kind of bill that takes place. So you have all that. You have the progressives that they laugh at, like the Bernie Sanders and the Elizabeth Warrens, and they just cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but they're actually trying to do it. Uh, and, of course, the uh, uh, Alessandro Castro's, you know, the AOCs and people like that that want it and want more. Uh, but settle for 15. So I go back to this administration where they can they can strong arm some stuff. And, you know, Vice President Harris um, can go to President Biden and say, look, I want to be the decided vote. We need to get this done. We made a promise to black and brown and poor white people and, and other uh, groups that are under $12,000, Doc. I keep going back. When I read that, it's just absolutely insane that this country would say that twelve grand a year means that you're not below the poverty line. Who the hell lives off $12,000? That that's just doesn't make any sense. So, again, going back to the bravery of this administration, and 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 getting these Democrats to to use what they have right now because Republicans do it all the time, use it to get your agenda done. But that's not going to happen. So, I mean, what do you say to the president and the vice president at this point, Doctor Bell, to to persuade them at this point? The first thing that come to my mind, L.A., is wake the hell up. When we talk about low-wage workers, they are most likely not to go to the doctor. They're most likely not to go to the doctor for things that are wrong but they're also less likely to go to the doctor for prevention activities. And if you do not prevent illnesses, they will manifest and kill you. Their children are less likely to have medical attention. And these things will cripple you bankrupt you and not only leave you or not only lead you to poverty but drown you in poverty we could go down the list of 
what can happen and what does happen when people don't have enough money to live on. With so many rampant diseases, we know that prevention helps catch disease early on. There's a greater chance that you could be saved and a greater chance that your life expectancy can increase. When we talk about low wages versus higher wages, that $15 an hour will help our economy grow. Because most people, they get the money, the $15 an hour, they will be better positioned to help build or rebuild our economy. They'll be more likely to be able to send their children to college, better prepared to prepare their children to get to college or a trade school. We're dealing with cycles here. And if we could put policies in place that expands the circle for people, put them on a better trajectory for life, to help them get off of the wheel, the hamster wheel. I hear so many people talking about the expectations of our economy that $15 an hour would help the economy greatly. Everybody could enjoy what's going on with the economy. I like to say that when the bottom is lifted, we're all elevated. Well, you know, uh, I just want to read this real quick and I know my other guest is on the line that the Senate Voted uh, well, not the Senate, but the uh, again, uh, parliamentarian ruled that the provision to increase the minimum wage couldn't be in, involved in this bill. Remember, this is a bill that this this current administration said was going to put that in there. That was a part of their agenda uh, to get things done. Um, obviously, it won't be any bipartisan support. I've heard some. Republicans talking about well let's well not seven twenty five let's do ten bucks an hour okay <laughs> really um and then now they're talking about reconciliation which means you got to have a certain amount of votes again it goes back to uh, the vice president stepping in and them trying to do what they need to to, to do um, doc when you you look at this first of all I've been saying for years and you've been saying for years all the politicians whether Republicans or Democrats always talk about bringing up the middle class bringing up the middle class bringing up but it, it, two things first what's the middle class what 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 is that like what is the the the, the average Household income now They keep changing it in this country Based on what they want um, And then two 
What about the poor? No, people, this, this whole notion that you have a job. I'll give you an example. I'm from New Haven, Connecticut. We have Yale University, which owns the city, really. They don't pay any taxes. Be, just sort of like, you know, Duke here in, in Durham, North Carolina. They don't pay taxes. Um, the universities and, and the and the spawns, the the hospitals and stuff. Yale, the same thing in New Haven. Are you there, L.A.? It's the Bachelor Pad here on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We are talking about the minimum wage here in the U.S. of A. For more information on the Poor People's Campaign, you can always visit poorpeoplescampaign.org. Find out the latest on our Moral Monday Zoom meetings. You can also find out the 14 policy priorities of the Poor People's Campaign and other pertinent information that might improve the quality of your life. One thing we need to impress upon the listeners, L.A., is that the listenership needs to get busy and call their elected officials. Voice your concern about the lack of action around this new proposed minimum wage standard. Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder could see how this $15 an hour should be in a stimulus bill. It will help stimulate the economy. I'm sorry, Doc. We had a a disconnect there. I do apologize for that. Um, I don't know how much of what you heard from me um but uh, uh, again at the end of the day uh these politicians can get it done both democrat and republicans this administration uh and you know i gave the the um example of yale university which owns everything in my hometown uh, hospitals they got their own police force and everything and they don't pay taxes and their their uh, argument is well we employ so many people but the bottom line is yeah you you employ people at less than minimum wage so just because you have a job doesn't mean that you you you're sitting pretty and you can afford everything and you got money in the bank like you said so it, at the end of the day is is not just about a job it's about being able to take care of your family and have a nest egg and invest in and have some security and some 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 sense of uh security in your life uh, uh with that. I mean, you know, no one in the so called greatest country on the planet should be homeless, poor, or hungry. No one. This is the greatest plant the, the greatest country on the planet. Yet we're number twelve out of thirty two countries when it comes to, you know, average salaries. 
You no, know, LA, it's the difference between surviving and thriving. Fifteen dollars an hour could brighten a family's outlook. It would enable them enable them to do some things that they're currently not able to do. It's just immoral. So what is the... Go ahead. Uh, you, you were blinking out there. Sorry about that. What I was going to say is what what can we expect from the the people's uh, poor campaign in terms of what you're doing and what can we do to help? Right now we are meeting on Mondays. I believe it's at 3 o'clock. It's by Zoom. Again, you can go to the poorpeoplescampaign.org webpage, and you can listen to the meetings right from there. And it's interesting, L.A., that during the election, and one of the focuses of our calls recently have been folks that have joined the Poor People's Campaign from West Virginia and also Mitch McConnell district. So we invite everybody to the Poor People's Campaign, the website, thepoorpeoplescampaign.org. You can sign up to join the crusade. Also, there's timely information. We have a listing of 14 policy priorities. You can familiarize yourself. And during our Zoom meetings, we encourage people to contact their senators and other elected officials. And I want to implore the listenership to spread the information that they're hearing tonight on the show. We need to put out an SOS. We need to be more organized than we have ever been organized before. The hits just keep on coming. The folks on the other side of the aisle and some on our side of the aisle, they're working against us, not for us. So we have to reignite people power. And the power is in our votes. The powers are in our vision. If we envision a more perfect union, we've got to work towards it. We've got to put a little elbow grease to the wheel. Nobody's going to just give us anything, even though it's supposed to be owed to us. And, you know, on on that final point, again, $12,000 a year, folks, and, um, you know, 15 bucks an hour might sound like a lot for a child or whatever, but once you average it out and all the expenses, I mean, you, it's, it's all, to me, it's, it's all set up for, for certain groups of people to fail. If you can't afford, you know, uh, uh, let's say a nicer neighborhood, you have to deal with what you have to deal with based on your income and everything else. It's all deliberate. 
And then if you don't have the education, I mean, it's, it's just all deliberate. And by the way, again, as Dr. Bell has said and, and, and Reverend Barbara said, that people were poor before COVID, people we are, are poor during COVID, and people will be poor after COVID because they're digging out. So, folks, let's look. Let's think about that, Doctor Bell. I, I appreciate your insight and you staying on as long as you have. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you. Enjoy the rest of your time. I'll talk with you um, very soon, sir. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you for the invite, LA, and thank you for the platform as well. Absolutely. Thanks to Dr. Lee Bell, uh, motivational speaker, media personality, and a community activist in Flint, Michigan, by the way, folks, home of the water crisis. We see all this bad water in Mississippi and all these different things because of power outages and, and bad grids. You know, theirs was pipes and, and bad leadership, which, again, it's, it's kind of one and the same. But um, God bless him. He, I mean, just trying to hold it down with all this stuff going on in, in Flint and around the country. But we appreciate him. Want to switch gears and and go to my um, next guest. He is uh, always um, good to have him on. He's a best-selling uh, author and histor- historically black college and university books uh, that uh, he's written so many. And is so well versed in it. Uh, good to have him on. He is Fred Wooden. And Fred, I appreciate you coming on. I hope all is well with you. And and, and thanks for uh, hanging on the line, sir. Well, thank you for having me on. I hope you can hear me. Absolutely, I can. I can. Um, I, I want to get to sort of the the news of the last couple of days and um, Coach Latrell Scott. Uh, head football coach Norfolk State leaving Norfolk State uh, losing record, but going in the right direction. I mean, they had their their most wins, and not just in the conference, but overall in in 2019. Of course, last year got canceled with COVID. They scored a lot of points. They they ranked a lot in, in a lot of different numbers. So the the program was going in the right direction. Um, I don't know if you hear anything, but were you surprised about the move? And and I don't know if you can confirm East Carolina as an assistant, but is that where he's going? According to uh, HBCU Game Day and a couple other sources, that's where he's headed to uh, East Carolina to be, uh, I'm guessing, a position coach. Uh there was no mention. I think, from what I understood, the coordinators at East Carolina are still in place, but it's kind of typical of what you know what you have to deal with because uh, I know people who are at that level, and they have position coaches that make more than head coaches at HBCUs because I mean the money's there, so they they pay what it takes to get who they want. You know, he was making you know. 
six figures, which again, we were just talking about $15 an hour and, you know, people, you know, under the, under the poverty uh, uh, line. Um, but what's the, and, and listen, I, we've had Coach Scott on this program a lot, so I'm, I'm certainly not going to be critical. You got to take care of your family, right? It's family first. If this is a move in the best interest of his family, I, I ain't mad at you. Um, my concern is that when we see some of the coaches in EHBCUs, Fred, and more so even the more prominent ones, that they don't leave, they, they don't even do lateral moves uh, based on the, the good old boy network. They go from head coach to strength coach or head coach to you know, offensive line coach or whatever the case may be. In his case, he played tight end, so maybe he on the offensive side. But it, it, there is no, you know, and I know he coached Tennessee, which is Southeast Conference, so that's a big-time, you know, uh, conference. But a lot of times we don't see our people leave a head coaching job to go to a better head coaching job. I mean, you got guys uh, like Ur- Urban Weiner, I call him. Urban Meyer, who had a scandal, got thrown out of Ohio State. Yeah, he won some national titles, but took some time off. And what did he do? He gets a job in the NFL. I mean, but we go from head coach to okay, we're gonna put you on the we're gonna put you on the team somewhere. We'll find a spot, and it might be a, a nice program, might be a nice conference, but it's not a head coaching position, Brett. Uh, yeah, you're right. But you got to understand, you, when you say six figures, uh, six figures at an HBCU, unfortunately, has uh, has a lot of space between it and what you'd have six figures at a PWI because you're probably talking about the difference. But uh, very, few, very few coaches at HBCUs make over 200 say 250, maybe a few, if they teach, make, say, 300,000. Well, there, I mean, matter of fact, I, I, I have a friend that uh, is a position coach at, an HP, at a PWI, and he makes almost $700,000. So wow. you're talking about, I mean, as of, as of about, and I think I think Coach Scott was at 168 or something like that, right? I think he 168 or somewhere around there. Well, see, you know, and see, you, I mean, and it also points to uh, the character of the person you're dealing with, because we saw the coach at uh, Howard refuse uh, Alabama. Well, from what I hear. Among his reasons was, I brought these kids in here, and we have a chance to do some things. And so what we're going to do, excuse I'm going to stay here, you know, because back in the day, a coach would say, well, I'm staying such and such. Uh, matter of fact, I know several who stayed, Big House stayed at Winston at one time, because I brought these boys in here, and I promised their mama they were going to graduate, so they're going to graduate. And I'm going to say, make sure to And see, that's the difference. Um uh, you know these these school. I mean, when you when, you, when it comes to athletics at a, at a predominantly white school, uh, especially the the, the Division One, uh, 
you know, the the mostly power five type schools, uh, athletics is a money pit. They get what they want. They, you know, it's like a friend of mine used to work at University of Tennessee and another guy worked in the uh, Southeastern Conference. And the kind of stuff they said was, uh, well, what's your budget? Well, what you want? Well, no, we want a number. No, there is no number other than what you want or what you need. And this is how they do stuff. Um, when you look at the fact, you know, why do you think why do you think the um, school, the Division One, all the Division One schools made a big deal out of playing this year because they had billions of dollars on the on the table. They were they were willing to risk these young men's lives, the coaches' lives, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, uh, and they were willing to risk all this because they had to put a product on the field to collect that three, I think it's like two or three billion dollars. But you know what, but, but uh, Fred, you know, I, I wonder though, if, and I'm not, uh, I'm not just, uh, I'm just using Latrell Scott because he was the topic that we started with, but I'm wondering if he's not better being playing hypothetical here. Um, uh, that he's not better at making the move he did rather than being, um, I mean, playing uh, advocate here, uh, being a Charlie Strong or a Sylvester Croom or someone who they send to Texas and, you know, he's he's a dead man walking. Like, don't even go to Texas as the head coach because you're a dead man walking, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Figuratively, and and so maybe you don't want to go from Norfolk State to Tennessee. Maybe you want to go from Norfolk State to East Carolina as an assistant, rather be a head coach at a big time program, because they always we and you and I have talked about this all the time. They are they're always going to put you in a position to fail. And then when you got big programs with the boosters and alum and all this kind of stuff, you you're definitely doomed to fail. It, it, it that's just the way it seems to the way it is, uh, Fred. Well, I mean, I won't say I won't say necessarily you're doomed to fail, but they're not going to help you to the same degree that they would help. Let's just use it as an example of the aforementioned Urban Myers. Myers is going to get what he wants from what he needs. Uh, by the same token, Strong and some of these other cats probably going to get. You know, a good, a good amount because you know when when Mac Brown left Carolina the first time, you know, I mean, among the things he had in his favor to go to Texas was they they sent a, a guy up, you know, a, a correction. They sent a, a group of young ladies here from the university, some other coaches and other prominent people to bring the wife of one Mac Brown down to pick out the house she wanted in. They had people ready to write the check for the down payment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, at the University of Texas, the the uh, the budget there is basically what do they want, what do they need? Okay, somebody, you know, write the check. It's there. They have, you know, they they not only because see, we, we you know, standing at an HBCU looking at how many people come through the turnstile and maybe a few boosters and maybe some, uh, some sponsors, some sponsorships. Uh, 
okay? At those schools, they got they have a, they have a, they have a group at that at the University of Texas for, for, for just so you understand who you're dealing with, and there's several dozen of these, several dozens of these people. They call them the Millionaires Club. They got boxes, sky boxes at the at the uh, at the at the stadium, and all those sorts of things. And if you don't put a million dollars in the pot, then you don't get nothing. You know, you don't you you don't go get you know they you know they you got your own elevator. You know, you park a spot on campus and they show for you all over that kind of good stuff. And you know that it's it's you know we're talking about the difference between chess and checkers, really. Because when you look at what they have to work with there, uh, it's almost insane. Think about it this way. I remember a guy telling me one time he had to go um, scouting, and they had a scouting budget. Well, as he moved up the ladder, he went to another school and got into the scouting budget, and guess what? The scouting budget was more than the budget for the program he left. Wow. I mean, I'm talking about, I mean, when I say scouting budget, that was just for his side of the ball. Basically, he was a, he was a defensive, he was a defensive coach. And as a defensive coach, uh, you know, you get on a plane and fly where you want to go, you know. You know, uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking with Fred Woodard, a best-selling uh, author, HBCU uh, author, and historian, written uh, many books. We'll talk about uh, what he's got going on uh, now here on the Bassett News Radio Show. Tony T. Mac McLean uh, j- chime in in a minute. The, let me ask you this, Fred: uh, Are you because you mentioned, you know, HBCU coaches? can make more money typically if they're teachers as well as coaches, or maybe I, I would assume you're saying if they're ADs and coaches, they, they have those dual roles, they can make more money. Are they better suited in that role? Is the academia, academia side, I mean, you know sports, but you're, you're, you're a professor. You know, you understand that side of the world. Are they better off? Going in like that, having that, um, the you know, even grooming that 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 way where they go in and they're coaches, but they're also working on that side of the world um, to get the respect and and to really not just make a lateral move, but a step up. I mean, I know a guy who we know, Tony and I know, who you know does basketball but he's a professor at LIU. So he going to have him he going to have a gig at LIU teaching but he also does the basketball. So it, are they better suited to to have job security or have a, a better chance to to upgrade if you will rather than when they leave in a sort of a lateral move or lower. Well, you have to consider how the system works. One one of the reasons uh you know when I came out of school, I, I had no intention of ever coaching, uh, although I did, in the, in the, other, other than briefly coaching football. The sports, I, the sports I coached had nothing to do with the sports I played other than I played baseball and coached softball. 
having said that, the system at most most schools you will find, especially at state schools, at at the Division two and three level or the NAIA levels, those coaches mostly have at least a teaching job where they teach one or two classes. Because I remember when uh, Coach Phillips was at Fayetteville State. One, see, and, and understand this: if you go if you go down the list of coaches, uh, of the young men and women in coaching, one of the first things they try to do is get their masters so they can become a, a fully paid assistant coach. A lot of the coaches you see on the sideline, as part of their package, they get, uh, I'll call it free tuition, so they can work on them towards their master's degrees and that kind of thing. And once they get their master's, they can start teaching or being an, being an, an administrator in a position that requires they have a, uh, a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. Well, at, public, at private schools in some cases, they can have they can do a lot of things without a master's degree, but at state schools that's usually a requirement, no matter what state you're in. And so, as they as you see young men and young women in various sports sports moving up the ladder, you can almost bet your bottom dollar they have worked on their master's and sometimes towards their doctorate, because at those smaller schools, usually part of their package is either they're they're you know, the, I know at Livingstone, one of the popular um, positions for um, assistant coaches, in some cases head coaches, whereas uh, like Dana men or the uh, dorm directors and those kinds of things. And they had multiple jobs because they were getting pulling from multiple uh, pots of money. And to do that, uh, one of the rich places to have them is in their, uh, in academia. In academia, you know, that's quote, quote unquote, drives the uh, drives the system for us for for colleges in general. But you know, because I've talked to, uh, uh, you know, you, you you don't find a lot of head coaches who have their doctorate. But one, um, the guy that used to be at a at a Nebraska was one of the, was one of a few, and there was um, there was a head coach at I want to say Iowa, or one of the mid, one of the Midwest large Midwestern schools. He actually had his doctor doctorate, but usually once they get their doctorate, they they, they leave coaching, but a few of them uh, a few of them have stayed on. Yeah, and it's so um, funny to the to the point of what you're saying, and I'll go to Tony. Uh, um. Just, I'm just making a comment that I know a lot of um, people who are involved, let's say involved with sports, maybe coaching as assistants, but they, but they're on the academia side and they they're looking for tenure. You get that tenure, then you know it's a it's a whole different ball game. Um, so it, uh, again, I, I don't know how difficult it is, um, but it seems as though. Uh, not to not to be, you know, Nick Saban or somebody where you're a coach and a, you know, administrator or whatever, because you know that that that's a whole different level. But at the HBCU level, um, that that seems like that that brings forth more uh, uh, security, and you can build a program if you are able to 
kind of juggle the both. Uh, Tony, good evening to you. We were we were uh, talking about this, but we also started a conversation off about um, the article you sent and what we were discussing about Latrell Scott moving on, and and I had mentioned to Fred um, that you know going not not to use him, but a lot of our coaches go from head coaches to strength and condition coaches somewhere else mm-hmm. at, at a higher level, not like uh, a urban whiner, I call him, who can get get marred in controversy, get kicked out, sit out for a while, do a little stuff on, on TV, and then go right to the NFL. I mean, it's just a different ball game when it comes to ours as opposed to theirs. Yeah, it's and and it seems like this 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 is this has uh, become um, all sort of happen place with HBCU sports. Um, I know Fred, we had talked about this uh, a little bit the other night, but um, is I mean, is this a is this more like a is this a step down or a step up for uh, Scott? I mean, I know he's probably gonna make a couple more bucks, but he's basically gone from being a head coach to being an assistant. I mean, you know what? Big picture, is this a step up for him? Well, well big picture is, is financially yes, um, mm-hmm. because because unless he comes in as say assist the uh, the uh, assistant head coach or something like that, uh, I don't see where position wise it's that much better. But when you look at the fact that he's going to make a whole heap of a whole heap more money. That's probably a bigger deal than than the, what he would be as far as position, because he's not going to be head coach. Uh, it may be it may be a step towards a head coach at another school, but he's not going to be one of these Carolina because they've already had one black head coach in football and one in basketball. I don't see them having another one. They don't have black coaches, head coaches, and much of anything else. Like uh, the University of North Carolina is, uh, is still waiting on their first real head black, black head coach, but nobody talks about that anyway. So I'll leave it alone. Yeah, yeah, and, and um, you know, there's all you know. I guess you know the MEAC tried to do the uh, spring ball this year, and and it it, it failed. And it really it failed, unfortunately. He knows things of their own. And you've got the SWAC, you know, somewhat putting up games. I know when Alcorn, um, when Alcorn uh, uh, begged off early. Uh, do you think the punishment fit the crime where they basically had them um, forfeit their entire season? Well, the thing you have to look at there is they, as a conference, said we're going to play. If I, as I understood it, they had a chance to opt out up front and mm-hmm. didn't do it. And then when they didn't do it and, and schedule those games, well, I mean, now, you know, you already got a schedule in place. Right. Everything is, is laid out. And, you know, you know, think about it. And this is not being sarcastic, but just think about it for a second. They could have always have done what Mississippi Valley is doing. And then who, who imagined – that the situation would have happened with Texas Southern and whoever they were supposed to play last weekend. 
or Prairie View, whoever. No, Grambling and Prairie View was supposed to play last weekend with the, uh, and, you know, and my sister said, you know, it was going to be a cold day in hell, and it was, no, it was a cold day in Texas. I mean, she's been in Texas 30 years and never had a freeze like that. So, I mean, they, I mean what can you do? But, see, what you have to look at is uh, until HBCUs get to a point where they can, where they're willing to afford a great, a greater amount of money and looking for what they want, then they're going to keep having these kind of results where people can come in. And, you know, think about just a few years ago, Coach Mack at uh, North Carolina Central was pulled away to, I want to say, be a quarterback coach or our offense coordinator one down in some school in Texas. And, you know, he was a head coach, you know, a winning head coach at Central and when he goes to Texas, uh, you know his his his, you know his 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 billfold wasn't big enough no more. He yeah. had to you know he had to go he had he had to go get his own bank as a, as a young Jose because he was making he was making probably as much per quarter as he was making per year as a head coach at Central. And and and, and by standards. Central actually was paying pretty good. But like I said earlier, it's very rare among, among HBCU coaches that you have um that you have salaries much over two fifty, three hundred thousand dollars. Mhm. And, and they don't even have you know, you, you could you, you know, 'cause I would think that okay, you have some kind of incentives and that kind of stuff. They don't do a lot of that either. Mm. You know, Fred, I, I want to um, go to the CIAA. I, I was uh, put out on Facebook earlier, and this is really for the both of you, but I, I want to go to you, Fred. Um, and, you know, again, I I, I, I love uh, um, uh, Ms. McWilliams. I think she does a really good job, so I'm not uh, being critical, but it, I put out there, you know, in terms of how different it was for people virtually um, with the tournament, if you will. And so I got a lot of feedback, and a lot of people were saying, you know, it was obviously different, but that's Captain Obvious. But um, one person, uh, actually a couple people have said, you know, this this could be this could set them back a, a little bit going transitioning to Baltimore and all that. But they also said it also is a reason why the four families, we call them, right, um, should come together because if, if one's not doing the other, doing something, the other one could kind of uplift them, the other, the other conference. And we're talking about the SWAC, MEAC. Uh, the SIAC and the CIAA can can uplift the other one up in the time of crisis when you've seen one conference said we're not going to do it, the other conference said they're going to do it. Um, so to you first, uh, Fred, what say you about what you've heard about the conference, how much they've suffered, if it's been, if it's going to set them back for a while, we're not actually playing, and then to the point of uh, one of my 
um, followers that said, you know, this really proves that we all should be in this together. All the four families should be in it together. Well, actually, we are. And interestingly enough, you actually had the uh, Gulf Coast Conference, which is an NIA conference that's heavily black as far as institutional membership, that actually they just had their tournament over the weekend, and Xavier won both of them. But, you know, the whole thing is that, yeah, we are all in this together. We do – there, there is no – question that we could do a whole lot better and I think it behooves us to try to do a lot better uh, I don't you know right now the question is for especially where the MEAC is concerned how are they going to do better because they've lost so much of their their, uh, their power base with Hampton and um, A&T up north and then they've also lost uh, um the Florida schools. Florida schools, yeah. So, so you know, I mean, and remember, uh, A&T and FAMU are two of the largest HBCUs anywhere. So when they lose those two, what do you got left? And see, the kind of things you have to look at is what, uh, what, what is what is the plan going forward when it comes to uh, uh, Miss uh, McWilliams and so forth. And, and along with the uh, presidents and chancellors, you know what? What you know what? What is it going to be? You know what's their plan for the CIAA in general, and then what's their plan for the CIAA tournament? Because when you look at the SIAC, for instance, you know they have held they have held their their conference tournament. On on campuses on their home campuses for the last oh for at least eighty eighty five percent of the of the uh, SIC conference tournaments have been held on on campuses because they started out at Tuskegee and eventually moved over to uh, Morehouse and for the last year the last tournament they had was held actually held over at Winthrop College. Uh, which is on another campus. So, but with 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 CIAA, you know, CIAA fans, they, they, you know, once all this stuff settles down, I'm sure that they will come back out because, I mean, I think they will understand the situation because when you look at it, uh, the schools who played, especially the bigger schools who played f- football and the other sports, they had a, they had enough money to pay. More, they, you know, they, they're, they're, don't don't they, don't think they're getting all cheap uh, with all this testing they have to do. And then you got to, you know, like, I understand one or two games where the teams have flown to the new the site only to find out they weren't going to play. So you you know, there's no money made because there's you know other than the television money, and that's that's the asset they have that 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 the um, well only the um, only these um, SWAC has a television um, contract that allows them to financially do this kind of thing. And see, that was another reason uh, uh, Alcorn had to forfeit all their games. Yeah, and, and you know, it, when you, you look at it, too, um, 
I, I, I think that it, 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 this was something, T, that nobody saw coming, so it was some hard decisions to be made. Incidentally, we'll have Madam McWilliams on pretty soon um, and, and Dr. Thomas and, and some others, but it, it you know, it does, it does beg the question of, uh, I understand what Fred's saying, like we're all, we're really already, they're already really connected, but in terms of some of the conversations the three of us and others have had in terms of, you know, having a, 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 a black national championship with all this, you know, and all that. So now you pull all that stuff in. So when these crises come up, you know, then you got the, the Alabamas and Tennessees and everybody sharing the money because they can, number one, but because they're all in it together. And so one might be making more in the other one anyway, but they're all still making money and they're all still keeping their doors open. I guess it's what the conversation on Facebook I had with uh, some people earlier. And, and also, and, and Fred can attest to this, you know, folks have been talking, uh, folks have been talking about this for years, you know, even, you know, long, long before, long before, even when we got, uh, into uh, sports, I, I I don't think. Unfortunately, I think it's more of a money issue in the sense of you know the SWAC and the MEAC have sort of established a certain you know criteria, and I don't know if the CIAA and the SIAC uh, can really. You know, meet. I mean, there's a reason why there's you know one AA or or F or FCS, however they call it, and Division Two. Um, I think in a perfect world, we would love to be able to see them all maybe be uh, one AA and 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 really do compete for for that total black championship. But I think a lot of it is just going to have to be like Fred said. It's just going to be. We are we're going to follow each other, but we may not have, we may not be able to quote unquote follow each other on the field a hundred percent, and it's too bad because you would sort of like to see it because you know look the the white schools only try to play these schools when they know that they have an advantage because all those years you know they avoided Big House, they avoided Coach Rob, they avoided Coach Mack, they avoided uh, Coach Jeffries and and and, and um, Coach Gaither, because they, you know, how dare they lose to a black school? And it's 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 a it's a it's a tough existence. It's a very very tough existence. And the fact that this pandemic, to a certain extent, has shut down teams for almost literally almost two years. You know, CIAA basically has been shut out for about a year and a half now. Um, with you know, with the tournament, they were able to get. I guess if, if I remember correctly, they did play last year. But the, the MEAC had to shut it down, and now they're having to shut it down again um, this year. It's, it's um, I, I just hope at this point in time right now that they're at least able to start back in the fall. Well, with yeah. the with, with the uh, with the uh, vaccines and that kind of stuff, I think that they'll be able to uh, at least put a put a, a quality product on the field, uh, you know, you know, I don't know how this, 
this we'll see this weekend how teams start playing out for this for the swag because you got more than one team playing this weekend, mm-hmm. and it be and and being more than one state. So and see, because see that's one that see that's one of the problems you had to deal with uh, when it came to um, trying to play this year. You know, you got North Carolina and Virginia bordering each other. And you have a whole different set of rules to go to play by. Mm-hmm. You had Claflin for us in South for the CIAA in South Carolina, a whole different set of rules than Fayetteville State in what a hundred miles in blue, a couple hundred miles in one direction, and Johnson C. Smith across the state, another you know another set of rules to go by, mm-hmm. and then 44 miles up the road you got Livingstone, another set of rules to go by. And so, you know, as you as you look at it, it was hard for anybody to consider uh, a legitimate way to do it. And the more these states lines you had to cross, the more expensive it got. Yeah. And, 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 you, and then you see the and then you see the, the madman down in Texas who's basically <laughs> trying to you know, he's, he's basically open everything trying, up. Oh man, and that's gonna add. See. That you know, they may get set back again, even before uh, even before there is the possibility of uh, fall sports or what have you. It, it, so you it, left okay. You left out Mississippi, although the, you know, surprisingly, there's no real good basketball in, in Mississippi, no way. So, other yeah. than Talladega College. Was <laughs> yeah, I. I, I want to go back, though, to um, the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference, the MEAC, we call it, and and the, the really the the devastation, uh, not just with A&T on the field, but the academic side, it, the the excellence that uh, the Aggies have, you know, in the classrooms, what they put out. Um, and I, I asked uh, Fred and, and T-Mac, Marcus Johnson, at at St. Augustine and and um, and Coach, um, gosh, name escapes me. You help me at Norfolk State, not Latrell, but on the basketball side, the name escapes me. But um, I, I asked them both, uh, you know, what it's been like in terms of playing or not playing. One's playing, and the other one's not. And they all seem to be in the same boat. It's like the first. You, you're making adjustments. Marcus Johnson said, listen, I've been coaching and playing basketball forever. This is really freaking me out. Like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, weird going, it's weird going to his high school, his, his son's um, middle school uh, basketball games because he got all this free time. And so it's got to be, it's got to be doubling uh, worse, Fred, from the, the standpoint of the financial we know the decision to play or not to play, you got one conference, again, the, the St. Augustine and CIAA, Norfolk State, and another one. But the, that decision and then the, the the mental side of it with some of these presidents, obviously the commissioners involved, and these kids that, you know, all these adjustments that had to be made, I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that from them for – that 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 broader perspective. Well, one of the things you learn as a as a uh, as an athlete and coach is that 
among the greatest things you have to do to be successful is no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter what the sport may be, the most, one of the most valuable lessons that you can learn is how to adjust to adversity. And this is something you hear taught in that same manner. This is something you hear taught in other ways, but it all boils down to how do you handle adversity? If you cannot make adjustments, no matter you know, because see, think about it. You hear you hear all the good, all the all the great coaches. These use some line like this. Uh, we had a great game plan, but then if you ask them, well, how long do you stay with your game plan? Oh, maybe first couple of downs. After that, hey, we're, you know everything. They made adjustments. We made adjustments. You look at basketball. You know we we, we decided we we're gonna press the whole night. As soon as they get off the bus, we're going to start pressing. When they leave, we're going to follow them to the door. Okay? Something goes wrong. Something goes – they make changes. They break that press. What happens? They change to something else. And so, I mean, it's going to be different. And I can I can tell you personally, a week ago Saturday night, I, I was um, – I mean, a year ago Saturday night, I was at, um, at uh, the arena in Charlotte watching Winston-Salem State beat – Federal uh, State or whoever it was we be, and you know, I'm thinking a year from now we'll be in Baltimore. You know, this is one of the first times, and God knows when I haven't been out of the state of North Carolina in a year. Because remember, this time, I mean, like right, right about here is where the SIAC was playing in at Winthrop. And you start hearing these rumors about this this bug that was going around. Okay, approximately a week from today, going forward, was I think March around March 12th. I know that was the last. I think that was the last. No, March. I want to say eighth or ninth was the last Sunday we had service at our church because the Sunday I came back after I came back from the tournament, the first Sunday in March we had service. And we've had what two or three funerals since then, uh, and a couple of other things. But we, you know, service was uh, everything changed after that because uh, I mean, you were just you know, and as, as we told some people, it's not that we want you to wear a mask; it's the law. You know, this was a mandate, and it's for your better. Right. And we know those places where they didn't, where they didn't wear masks. I mean, I it, 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 uh, Roland Martin was talking about this guy he knew, who just was. I mean, they just lamb blasted their authorities about uh, having them wear masks and, and and not having big groups and stuff. And so he said, you know, there were like twenty some twenty some adults there, and since they had this little party that they had to have, they have had like six or seven funerals, plus the guy who who was the father. Of the group said he, you know, through through his ventilator, he's saying he was crying and saying, "Hey, I didn't think it was going to be that bad. I didn't think it was that going to be that bad." But you know, we were told, you know, they didn't know how bad it was either. But we told it, we were told it was bad, and it was bad enough we should take take precautions. So yeah, if if if, if but see, these guys do what they want. I mean, these guys want to go out and play. They want to go out and run. They want to go out and catch passes, play defense, whatever. You know, 
they're going to, and these are young people. They're going to make, they're going, they're going to make, they're going to make the adjustments they need to make. Coach is going to make the necessary adjustments. Once we get a whatever the new normal is, once we get to that point, you'll you'll see things falling into place. Yeah, and you know, uh, uh, shame on me, Robert Jones. If you listen out there, I'm just, uh, I had a brain fart for a moment. Uh, he was at, at Norfolk State, but um, you know, to your point. Um, it, it, I I was hearing stuff, you know, just kind of into politics, hearing about the virus in, in January before the year. And like you, I left the CIAA, and Tony would tell you, he was texting me, everybody was texting me. I got to the MEAC a couple of days in, and by the time I got to the arena or en route, en route to the arena <laughs> – they shut everything down, and Tony to tell you, I needless to say, I had some some words uh, <laughs> that I wasn't a happy camper. But it it you it has been that that time. You couldn't believe I was what was you couldn't believe what you would hear because it sounded so strange. Yeah, I'm getting it. I heard the rumors that you know about. Okay, I I heard about the virus, but I didn't know it was going to be so bad again nobody did but then i said okay well we'll get through the tournament i got you know i'm already i got everything planned and booked i'm gonna go there i get off the plane my 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 brother's texting me t-mag everybody's telling me hey man they're shutting it down i'm like what they're shutting it down yeah i, I literally <laughs> i was literally i was literally like um i was literally watching the last game that was that was played around three o'clock, and right. as I'm as I'm leaving work, uh, you know, I, I, you know, the me accents out the thing where you know, tournament's done, and I'm thinking, uh oh, <laughs> yeah, because I'm already, I'm like, yeah, I'm already, I'm I'm literally Fred, literally driving to uh, to the scope, and and get these all these texts coming in. I'm like, what do you mean? What? Not call. I'm like, oh my God, are you serious? I, I you know, you, you didn't expect that. But here, final final thoughts uh, as it relates to COVID. Um, from from the side of 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 us, of African Americans, and we know the history. You guys know it better than I. When it comes to vaccine and the apprehension in our community, I mean, you can think of the Tuskegee experiment. You can think of a lot of different ways that we've been used as guinea pigs, to say the least, when it comes to these type of situations. Um, we always get, if, if if white America or mainstream gets it bad, we get it worse. And we know that. Look at the, even the trying to get the vaccine now. And as as the previous guest, we were talking about minimum wage. I mean, if you know we're always on the front line. If we're not getting the, if we're not get, if they if the seven twenty five is the average pay of minimum wage, we're getting less than that uh, in most cases. So my my question to you, Fred, is if if this thing is the right thing, if this president is pushing forth this COVID nineteen, and we believe in this, um, what is it going to take to get us to believe it. We don't trust the cops. We don't trust these vaccines. So what is it? Who is it going to take? You know, I, I know the great 
Hank Aaron, even in death, the the man was so brilliant and so such a great guy. Even in death, he was saying, "Hey, I got I got vaccinated. I got or at least I got checked. You can get checked too." So, is it going to take that type of voice out there from the sports world, in particular, if that's what we believe in, to say, "Hey, we need to do this because we have those." underlying conditions the diabetes and stuff maybe we need to go ahead and try this um so we can be safe and and healthy and and uh live our lives well the, the nicest way i can say this is now you 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 you'll figure out what you truly uh what you truly believe in because uh i put my faith in god i put my faith in science i put my faith in knowledge and I have decided I'm, I'm actually going to do the uh, vaccine. I'm waiting for them to get the one where I only got where, where I only have to take the one shot. Cause just watching on TV, them some awful big ass needles. <laughs> <laughs> and see years ago, see and see years ago, I actually took a flu one of the flu vaccine in '78 or '79, and I've had a reaction that still bothers me today. But at the same time, I talked to my niece who's a and my niece slash uh, goddaughter, and she was telling me, Unc, it's okay. She recommended her mother take it. My sister is her mother, and she took she took the uh, she took it at her job who, who, over a month ago, and she's had no reaction to it. And you know, so I've decided I'm going to go with it. You know, you you, you just got you know you it's, it's this this is one of the situations where. It's better to do it and trust because, we, you know, at least now we have some people on the inside who can vouch for and who will help them with the development as well as the follow-up. And it's not like it was with Tuskegee. Basically, they brought a bunch of white dudes down who even told the black guys, you know, the, the black guys who were doctors and stuff, they lied to them. So that's not that won't be the situation now. So my, my plan is to um, – I'm working on looking at Tuesday or Wednesday of next week, schedule, trying to schedule to get my shot. You know, see, the the thing is, um, he he's right. Like it, it's basically, it's, it, you know, it's better to be safe than sorry in a lot of cases. You know, but we that whole fake news and it's the virus is fake trickles into our community, as you know. And case in point, my sister is a nurse. My sister is a nurse. She deals with, and I told her I was saying on the air, she deals with um, sick people all the time. And she did the little mask thing, but she wasn't really following all the guidelines. She's in the industry, and guess what? She caught it. And now she's like, okay, well, whatever. So if she's in the industry and she's not taking it seriously, I mean, what is it going to take for people not in the industry to do it. And it goes back to, do we need to have those powerful voices out there? You know, we're going to listen to Al Sharpton, no disrespect, to follow him. Then we need to be following some other people to tell them to go, we need to go get a shot. Well, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not listening to, to the rest. Uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll no, just I, no, I'm you know. just making an example. <laughs> I'm not I'm making an example. You know, you know please wait. One would think with 500,000 uh, people who are no longer with us, that would be enough 
to whatever. That's and, 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 yeah, yeah, and and all the stuff that was up there. See, the, the I mean, and full disclosure, I had it for a couple of weeks as well. I was able, you know, thankfully, I was able to get through it and everything. Um, I've gone back and forth with whether I want to, and 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 ironically here, um, it was just approved for folks uh, 50 and over to take it. Now, I, and now, Fred, I think it's the is it the Johnson and Johnson one that uh, that's just the one time. That's the one time one. Um, you know, if I were to do it, I would probably want to do the one because I know like like my my brother took the one, and he's supposed to take a second one. Um, I think within a week or so. See, to me, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like, wait a minute. If it's a vaccine, it should be a vaccine, not plural. You know, just 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 on just on GP, I would think. You know, you just need to take it once. But um, you know, I I, I mean, I probably you know at at some point, I think I probably will. But at at this point in time, right now, I'm gonna I'm gonna just sort of see and wait it out and see, and, and see what happens and see how how things react. <laughs> Well, here's, yeah, because sad, sadly, cause sadly enough, Fred, I've seen uh, the Charles Barkleys of the world that made it that that we politicize it too. Like if you're a Republican, conservative, you know, live free and this and that. And I, I, I get Tony's point. Like, it, you, why you got to get shot a couple times? But the point of taking it, period. You know, you're on one side, and some other brothers are on the other side. The sisters on the other side. And it's unfortunate that we get caught up in that that whole mainstream way of thinking when it comes to something very important and crucial. Because again, this is our lives. Um, either going to be on, you know, I mean, if if if, if as Tony said, a, a half a million people died or and more, I mean, something. If it walks like a duck and acts like a duck, it's probably not a dog at this point. You don't have to worry about it chasing no cars. Yeah. 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 And see, my thing to most people has also been this. Uh, it's just like reading the Bible. Sometimes some of the stuff you need to read for yourself anyway. And you can, you know, I, nobody has any less trust for the government than I do, although there's certain things that you got to trust them for. And... Uh, as we as we go as we move forward with this kind of thing, you know, when we talk about that half a million people, half a million plus people, the thing you got to consider is we're just talking about the new United States. We haven't talked about England. We haven't talked about uh, France. All the you know the European Union. We haven't talked about Africa. We haven't talked about Australia. We haven't talked about all these other places out there. And and the, the, the measuring stick that I would use is this one. When they said we should wear masks, look at the states where they didn't. Look what happened. When they said, uh, you know, stay home, look at the state who did, look at the states who didn't. You know, and I had two, at least I can name you two of my schoolmates, one of whom was a schoolmate going back to when I was a kid. They're not with us anymore. Mm. One of them was, one of them was, was, "Quote unquote healthy as a horse," so we thought. The other one had some had some heart problems and so forth, and he contracted it while he was in the uh, 
while he was in the hospital. Okay, the place where my late brother and his wife used to stay in Concord, same thing. Because of the way they function in these retirement centers, uh, several people there caught it and died. You know, because, I mean, they're, they're forced to come together at least two times a day and this kind of thing. And because of that, they didn't know what was going on. And then, remember, all the same people wait on them. So, you know, we got to I mean, it's my recommendation is that you, you know, if you're going to err, err on the side of taking the vaccine and at least have something that's preventing because he, with the vaccine being given out as it is, we're not talking about the experiment like they did in uh, with the Tuskegee and those other things because they intentionally gave some people placebos. If you're not, if you haven't volunteered for the te- for the testing phase of it, you won't have to worry about it. You're going to actually get the vaccine. Right, and with like Tony, I think I had I had it myself, but I certainly had the symptoms way back when. Um, so you know, again, I think we're all saying at least err on the side of caution. I'm not going to be mad at you if you if you get it. That that's it's nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with that, and but I, at the same time, I do understand, you know, the the apprehension in in, in our communities um, when it comes to <laughs> to the government and 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 other things. The final question, real quick for you, um, um, Fred, Hank Aaron. I mentioned him, uh, the, the great ham, Hammer and Hank. Um, just assess him in terms of where he stands in your opinion um, in baseball, but just. The, and we we don't lord up our folks, but he I mean certainly an icon. I mean there's there's no way about it. Just a quiet assassin on on the field, and just a great man off the field in every every shape of of, of the word great. But what, where do you place him in terms of uh, where he was? Well, he would be high on my list for any kind of athletics because I think. Had he played football, he would have been great at football. I think if he played basketball, he played. He would have been a great basketball player because he was a great athlete. He was a great thinker, uh, and you know, I, re- I I remember vividly like it was yesterday because a friend of mine and I were ta- talking within the last couple of weeks about the night we ran. He came in from something he was doing with the band because he was a member of the band, and I came in from track practice and we ran to the cafeteria, we grabbed us some food, gulped it down and ran to get us a seat in the uh in, in the uh room the uh fellowship room at the uh dormitory so we could watch on the big screen t- at that time, the big screen T V in Brown Hall so we could watch uh him take, you know, that that shot seven fifteen. And, you know, he was one of the best who ever who ever swung the bat. He had a he had he had a he had a he had a high batting average. He had a low strikeout rate, and all kinds of good things. You know, when it came to being a good, and he was in 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 unlike uh, and like so many others, he was a, he was a um, he was he was an offspring of the uh, Negro League. Plus, he still he was to the very end. He was still one of the greatest ambassadors baseball ever had. Yeah, and 
And Tony, I know baseball didn't give to him what he gave to baseball, yet the the dude was just incredible. And I I don't have a lot of envies in the world, but I, I wish I was older enough more to catch him early and not, you know, have those memories of him you know, around the 7.15, a little before that, but, you know, coming into the 7.15, because he was just such a great man, just a kind guy, you know, and a great ball player. Well, there's a lot of stuff, up, you know, if you if you have the time or whatever, and I know maybe, that you know, it doesn't have the same effect, but if you just go to YouTube and put in Hank Aaron, there's a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of, there's a lot of great stuff, uh, you know, whether you want to see him, on a home run derby. I was going to say, I watched him in home, home run derby. Yeah, I watched yeah, He's just yeah, a little off thin guy. I actually, yeah. I actually watched, um, I actually watched the, um, the, uh, the highlight film for the, for their, for the 57 world series, uh, not, not too long ago. And people forget how big of an upset that was back in the day. You know, that, um, you know, the Yankees were right in the middle of their, uh, you know, their dynasty and you had the team, you know, had like a little upstart from Milwaukee to win and it, it it again it just speaks to how he just literally snuck up on everybody because you know he he's 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 got world series championships he's got mvp you know he didn't get mvp which is which is ungodly when you really sit down and think about it but his res put this way like red said his re- his resume as an athlete is 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 one of the most is one of the most um, thick in in all in all of sports. You know, he's done it all. He did it all, and then some. Yeah, it, it, nobody nobody performs like that and 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 not be in the Jim Brown stratosphere as far as some guy who can just. You probably if he just decided he wanted to play basketball, he'd have been one of the greats there. It, it, that's that's the, the the athleticism and the intelligence. Let's not forget that because they always want to put us as athletes, but not smart athletes. Um, but Hank, Hank was just I just wanted the guy. I just always respected the man. He's just a calm assassin, I call him. Um, but I appreciate him, um, guys. I appreciate the time as always, Fred. Before you go. Um, let people know about your new book and 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 how they can no I know you got some stuff on Amazon but talk about your other your other project well I have a book that's coming out comes on blackheritagereview.com the um black college sports encyclopedia history of HBCU football we decided to do instead of leaving out a lot of people, what we did, we went out and found information and just put a book together strictly on HBCU football. That's available now. Uh, Also, we have uh, Coach Brownlee in the Pantherettes, which is the story of um, Claflin University's basketball, former basketball coach and their their, uh, team that went to the uh, NAIA Nationals four times in a row. And also, it's, a, it's also a history of Claflin University, and we have um, their tracks under the Maples and Oaks, which is a history of Livingstone College athletics. 
all them on on uh, on the uh, Black Heritage Review uh, on on the Black Heritage Review um, website, and there's simply thirty dollars plus seven ten for tax and for tax and uh, shipping. Which is very affordable, and 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 Fred, uh, I'll talk with you off air in the days ahead. We're going to be uh, featuring um, uh, black authors and posting the stuff on the website too. So I'll definitely be in touch with you. T, before you go, uh, B A S N uh, newsroom, talk about that, sir. Oh, uh, well, um, we're hoping to put out um, our um, some pre baseball stuff. As uh, the year, as uh, as we get closer and closer to the season, one of the things um, I'm definitely going to try to do this year, you know, in lieu of you know losing Hank and Joe Morgan and Lou Brock, I want to start doing focus on some of the great black ball players from back in the day. You know, not you know maybe not Hall of Famers per se, but you know looking back at guys like you know Mudcat Grant and Al Oliver. And, um, you know, just on and on, you know, just to give them their due, because especially now I think they need to be celebrated because their legacy, you know, without, you know, without, you know, without their legacy, you don't have, you know, the Hank Aarons and the Willie Mazes as well. You know, this and their stories need to be told. And that's what we're going to try to do as this baseball season unfolds this year. That would be awesome in a chronological order, and just it, I I would love to have see you do a fun debate on these guys. If you have a, a a Morgan and another black ball player at that position, and and put their stats up together, and just just have fun with it. I mean, well, see, the, yeah, you know, see, the, the thing is, you know, it's you know, it's sort of easy to do with the with the Hall of Famers, so to speak. And if, and and again, we don't want to belittle or overhype certain folks. But see, the thing is, and again, we're all biased here because we're all baseball fans. You know, we have we have unique memories. And at times the Hall of Fame is underrated because I think, and especially with baseball because of its arrogance, um, a lot of great players to me have been forgotten. And you know, I had wrote about the Negro Leagues long before uh, Major League Baseball decided to, you know, acknowledge them, so to speak. But there's some great, there's some great former major leaguers that that um, that need to be. You know, I think of something like the Hairston family. With you know, the Hairston family spreads out four generations, and and there's a Negro. You know, it started with Sam, the the the, the grandfather, so to speak. He was the he broke. The uh, color barrier for the, the the black American color barrier, of course. I guess Minnie Minoso was their first black player. But then you had Sam Hairston, you had Jerry Hairston, who later who became a White Sox, and then his two sons, uh, Scott Hairston and Jerry Hairston, uh, the Jerry Hairston Jr. Now that's a you know that's a family dynasty right up there with the Griffies, with the Ripkins. And 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 what have you? And their stories need to be told. That's a great point. I, I would what I would love to do, and what I'm going to plan on doing is having 
you and Bob Kendrick and Fred all on on at the same time, and y'all, I'll just sit back and enjoy the ride, and let y'all just kind of do the nostalgia thing and and the historical uh, part of it because uh, you're right, I love baseball. That's my first sport when I played. I, I love the game, and um, those stories need to be told. You guys are the best at doing it. I uh, appreciate you both this evening. God bless y'all. Be safe. And uh, uh, Fred, I will be in touch with you. Like I said, we're doing our um, our series on black authors, and I want to make sure I, I put you in the mix with that, sir. Look forward to it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Take care, Fred. guys. Thanks, T. If uh, folks, if you missed any part of the broadcast, make sure you go to our website. It is the T H E Bachelor with a T B A T C H E L O R, the Bachelor News Radio Network dot com. Check out all of uh, these are uh, interviews and our music and other shows there um, at any point of the day. You can tune in, listen, and enjoy. Speaking of which, enjoy. We'll talk with you soon on the Bastion News Radio Network and the Bastion News Radio Show and WCOM in Chapel Hill. Are you for me?
Got a new song on the radio and very proud of it. It's called I'd Rather Have Love. And we're going to do a little bit of this for you. Hopefully y'all can enjoy it as much as we did performing it. So, Cap, are you ready? How about you, Walt? My man, Leighton, you good? That's my man Steve over here. He's my engineer. All the music y'all been hearing me record, this guy's been behind the boards executing it, you know. Young boy, too. About, what are you, 25? 24? Oh, shit, 24. <laughs> They're getting younger, you, you, you know. Well, let's rock that real quick, player. Take it like we in church. Oh, I was cool in them streets. Yeah, I was cool in them clubs. Real talk, I wasn't thinking nothing about love. I didn't want nobody trying to partake in my stuff. I thought an occasional one night stand would be enough. She ruined my philosophy My heart skips a beat when she comes around I never thought that I'd be ready to settle down I was about to find myself alone But I found myself Told me what a real man should be She said, son, pick one And treat her like me Hey! I took all of her wisdom And I used it for selfish gain And I know if she saw this pimping She'd be ashamed I found this girl She ruined my philosophy My heart skips a beat when she comes around I never thought that I'd be ready to settle down I was about to find myself alone But I found myself on love I know
God bless. God bless. Thank you so much once again. Thanks to the living room, wonderful establishment. We'll do this again. Baby, come walk with me. Cause you've been away too long. I can live selfishly. And I know. I was wrong, oh, I embrace it completely. My life has new meaning, yeah. Baby, I cherish you, and I promise to love. Now it's crazy to me. I've been running all this time. You waited patiently on a love you would not find, darling. I need you so deeply, and your love has set me free. Yeah, baby, I treasure you, and I promise to love. Yes, I do, girl. You're the baddest one. 
woman I've ever known The sweetest thing I've ever had Yes, you are And I want to thank you, baby For loving me and changing me and saving me See, I was lost, I was lonely But you came in and turned it all around, girl You light up my life, yes, you do You're the song of my heart, the joy of my soul And I'm gonna love you, girl, I am I'm gonna be good to you, darling, I will Let the Lord shine His light on our love As we move on down the road together, girl Baby, 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 baby Can I love you all the days of my life? Hey, girl, I treasure you, yes, I do Can you hear me calling out your name? Can I give you all the things that you need? Can I give you all the love that 